Not sure you've heard, but we're starting a new series this morning. <laughs> on Song of Solomon, also called the Song of Psalms. And I've joked around in the office, our church is either going to cut in half or double in size uh, as a result of this. But now that you're in the mood of kind of talking to some of the people around you, I'm going to ask you to go outside your comfort zone and do that one more time. If you're sitting near someone, you don't have to, but think in your head and just think about this question and, and talk, in, talk amongst yourselves. What do you know about the Song of Solomon? Go ahead. What do you know about it? What? Sounds like you're having some pretty lively conversation, so you know exactly what uh, Song of Solomon is about, right? Uh, before we actually get into the text this morning, I'm going to do a bit of a more of an extended introduction to this book for some kind of obvious reasons. So if you have that booklet that was on your chair, I invite you to turn that to page two there. It's the very first page uh, there in your booklet. And I want to address four things as far as what do we know about the Song of Solomon. Number one, let's talk about its history. I don't know if you knew this, but when they were putting together the Bible, uh, they you know, were debating which books to include, which books not to include. And that was a, a long process that they would go through. And they were very close to not including the book of the Song of Solomon. And it's for the reason uh, that you were probably talking about uh, with the person next to you. It was just considered to be way too racy. In fact, did you know that Jewish boys were not allowed to read this book until they reached a certain age? You know, they were supposed to memorize uh, the Torah, but they were not allowed to touch the Song of Solomon. And many people today still don't want to touch it, right? I read a true story of this Sunday school teacher. She had taught Sunday school classes for like 40 years, and she had taught 65 of the 66 books of the Bible. Can you guess? Can you guess the one she avoided? Song of Solomon. But that's such a shame because, friends, this is the one book that we have that God has given us in his word to be a guide for us in our relationships as men and women. In fact, we are literally going to get a glimpse inside of an actual couple's relationship and as they walk through that relationship together. In fact, we're going to see them this morning even. The first time that they meet, we're going to see them date, go through courtship, get married, go on their honeymoon. That'll be a very interesting week here at, at our church. We're going to watch them fight did you know that two of the eight chapters of Song of Solomon are devoted to conflict? Hmm, I wonder why that is. We're going to see that they keep their romance alive. Or is romance ever supposed to die in a marriage? No. And we're going to see that they make a lifelong commitment to one another. Second thing just to talk about, and this is a softball one, just getting you warmed up, but who is the author of the Song of Solomon? Ready? Good, you're so smart here. I put chapter 1, verse 1 on the top of the notes there. It reads, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Now, if you're a, an astute biblical student, you're thinking right now, Solomon, huh? Isn't that a bit of a problem? After all, if you know anything about Solomon's life, uh, he at one point had 700 wives. So how could he be the authority to speak about love and relationships? A great question we need to address, don't you agree? First thing I would say about that is that was never God's intention for a king or anybody else to have multiple wives. We see it right away in the book of Genesis. In the beginning, God created male and female, one husband, one wife, to be married to one another. So bottom line is Solomon was disobedient. 
He was disobedient in this area. However, that leads to the second thing I'd say is that God still inspired him to write this book, just like he did with every author of the Bible, right? God inspired fallible, sinful human beings to write his word, the book, the Bible that we have in front of us still today. In fact, think about who is Solomon's dad? David. And we say David is a man after God's own heart, which is absolutely true. That's what God said, but David was also a murderer and an adulterer. And yet God inspired David to write much of the book of Psalms, which you probably know this already, but almost all of the songs we sing as church is kind of based out of this book of Psalms. It's a, it's a book of praise. Think about the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul wrote much of the New Testament, yet he called himself the worst among sinners. He, too, was a murderer, and yet God inspired him. And aren't you glad that God still uses sinful people for his work? None of us would have a place to stand on if that were true, and that's the same thing for the Bible that we have. He used sinful people and yet still inspired them to write these words. And the last thing I always want to mention about uh, this whole subject is most people believe that Song of Solomon was written early on in Solomon's life, before some of these things happened. In fact, if you know uh, the Bible, Solomon also wrote a book called Ecclesiastes. And if you've ever read that, never read that if you're depressed. But most people think... That he wrote that later in his life. And actually, if you think about that, if you've ever read it, think about the natural consequences his disobedience led him to. I mean, he's saying in that book, life is meaningless. These 700 wives are meaningless to me. They're not adding value to my life. Jeff and Annie were just talking about that in Bangkok, right? These people who come to try to find meaning. But meaning was not found in that kind of relationship. So, author, number three, style. What, what, what style is this book written? If you know about the Bible, it's written in different styles. There's the Torah, the law, there's history books, there are songs, and uh, there are the gospels, there's letters. What style is the Song of Solomon written in? Poetry. It's written in poetry, or what's also called wisdom literature. It includes things like the Psalms and Proverbs and, yes, even Ecclesiastes. It's written in poetry. And how many of you ever tried to read through Song of Solomon? Just raise your hand. It's confusing, isn't it? I remember the first time I read through the Bible in high school, I was on the three-year plan, and I got to Song of Solomon, and I'm reading things like, Your hair is like a flock of goats. And I'm thinking, this is very applicable to my life today, God. <laughs> it's written in poetry, right? And there's still, I'm going to tell you, you're going to be amazed. As we unpack, you know, what some of these things, this was 3,000 years ago. When we unpack some of these things, you're going to be amazed still, though, how relevant and practical it really is. So that's why uh, we're going to do that. Number four, this is a question that's always asked. Is this real or is it allegory? In other words, is this actually about a real couple? Or is this talking about something different? Namely, is this talking about God and his love for his bride, the church? If you don't know, the New Testament says the church is Christ's bride. So what is this about? Well, my answer to that is both. There's no question you can't read this and help but think about God's pursuit of us, of us as his bride, his love, his pursuit, his desire to be in relationship with us, yet Everybody today is in agreement. This is also a story about an actual couple, about Solomon and his future wife. We never get to actually learn her name. 
So it's both. As we go through this, think about God's great love for us, the way he pursued you. But understand, this is also going to be offering us some very practical uh, advice and wisdom in relationships. The second question I want to just address here in the introduction is why do a study on the Song of Solomon? Some of you are probably wondering that, right? What are we getting ourselves into these next seven weeks? Number one, it could not be more timely. That's why. Notice we called this series SOS, and that's not short for Song of Solomon. It's a reference to the fact that relationships in our culture today are in chaos right now, and they are crying out for help and guidance. That's why the picture on the front of your booklet there, it's communicating God has given us light. His Bible, the Bible is called the light unto our path, right? And we definitely need light as a culture in this area of relationship. The, there's just confusion and hurt. Sadly, so often, where do we go for advice, for guidance in these things? We look at magazines or the TV or we go to Facebook. And we think, well, that's really where we're going to find wisdom on how to do these things. But here's the good news. God talked about it in a book that was written 3,000 years ago. And like I said, you're going to be amazed at how relevant this stuff is still today. I want to just mention some of the topics we're going to be covering these seven weeks. Today, we're going to look at what should I look for in a mate if you're single? What should I look for? If I want to do relationships God's way, what should I look for? Number two, how and why should I date? What is this dating thing? Number three, how do I know when I'm ready to get married? What are the keys to a great marriage? What are the keys to a fulfilling, fulfilling sex life in marriage? What do I do when conflict comes in our marriage? Because it's going to come. How do we keep the romance alive? And how do we make sure our marriage is built to last? God hasn't left us in the dark with relationships. He's given us a book. And friends, if you hear one thing this morning, here's the big idea I hope you take away from this whole series. The reason God has done this is because he really wants the best for you. And he really wants the best for me in this area of relationships. I have a feeling that sometimes we're going to be looking at this and kind of roll our eyes and go, oh, this feels so outdated. It's the same with the Ten Commandments series, though, right? We were like, oh, these just feel like rules and regulations. They're stifling my freedom. When in reality, God wants us to experience the greatest freedom and health that we could possibly have. That's why he's given us this book. Now, it's up to you to decide whether or not you want to use this as a guidepost for your life. But that's why he did it. Sadly, two things have happened, though, that have sort of created some of this chaos. Number one, part of it, I think, is the church's fault. And I mean church with a capital C. They just, we just haven't talked about this stuff, right? I mean, how many of you grew up in a church that ever touched Song of Solomon? Very few of you, I'm betting, right? Why? And then we put our head in the sand and we look around at the culture and go, oh, everything's so screwed up. Well, part of the responsibility is that we haven't been teaching what God says about this, but we're going to do that here at this church. These next seven weeks, we're going to teach what God teaches about love and relationships. The second reason, though, I think you look around and see so much chaos and destruction is that either, number one, people just don't even know what God says. I've talked about that. Or, sadly, I see this more and more now. People know exactly what God says. They just don't want to do what God says. I'm talking about Christians right now. You know, I, I, it comes down to me. I've thought so much about this in any area. It's not just about love and relationships, but basically we live in the 21st century, and we kind of think we've arrived. And we're, we have in our mindset almost this idea of, like, God, you got to get with the times, dude. 
I mean, this stuff's like so outdated. And I, I, I look at that, and that can happen in my own life in some areas, and I go, wait a minute. Is God really outdated and needs to get with the times, or has something happened? Has something happened in our culture that has created a bigger and bigger gap? I'm going with the second, because God has given us a book. He's given us his word. He's shown us how to live in relationships. That's why, as Brian already mentioned, we're asking this question throughout the series. It's printed right on the cover of your booklet there. Are we going to look to the world or to the word for guidance in love and relationships? We're looking to the word here. We're looking to the word here. Second reason to do this series is because I believe no matter what stage of life you find yourself in, you will find this applicable. If you're single, what a great way to prepare yourself for a satisfying marriage in God's eyes. If you're married, even in the sessions when we're going to be looking back, you know, they don't get married until chapter 3. It can spark some great vitality in your current marriage relationship. If you need a little bit of a spark, and who of us don't sometimes in our marriage relationships, we're going to look back on attraction and other things like that, and it's going to hopefully remind you, what were you, why were you attracted to your spouse? And you can have conversations like that. Then, of course, they do get married, and we get to see them fight. We get to see them uh, keep the romance alive. How can that not be applicable? to where we are today. I want to say one last thing. I also think this could be applicable to you if you're older. I have a special heart uh, this series. You know, Brian mentioned my nervousness. Part of it is uh, it may not seem as relevant to everybody in our church family. I mean, maybe you've been married 60 years and you're like, we've got this thing down, thanks. Or your spouse has died, which is true of many, uh, you know, in our church family. What, what, what are you going to, quote, get out of this? Here's what I'd say. I'd say two things. Number one, certainly you still have people in your life that you dearly love and care for, kids and grandkids. And you could use tools in order to have conversations with them about this when the opportunity arises. But here's the second thing I'm going to say to you. I, I, I thought about this all week. I want to invite you especially if that's where you find yourself, maybe this isn't as relevant for you today. I want to invite you especially. Would you pray for the church during this series? I can't help but think when Paul described the church as the body of Christ, the metaphor he's using there is that we are all in this together. And you got to know there are some marriages that are hurting right now. So whether this is relevant to you or not, Hebrews says marriage should be honored by all. Would you honor this series by praying for it? Praying for the couples in this church. Praying for the young people, the single people in this church as we go through this. Third reason we're doing this is because, honestly, just of my personal experience with it. When Peggy and I, you're going to get to hear a lot of stories about her. She's vowed not to come these next seven weeks. <laughs> I'm kidding. She was at the last service. But when we uh, were dating, um, we had dated one time, and then we started dating again. Somebody handed us some tapes by a pastor by the name of Tommy Nelson, and he had taught through Song of Solomon. And we started listening to these tapes, and I'm just like, why have I never heard this stuff before? Where was this in high school? I could have used it uh, in high school. And so first of all, I just want to give credit to where credit is due right off the top. This is heavily going to be influenced by what I've learned uh, from Tommy Nelson here. So just understand that. So I've taught this twice on two separate occasions, once to the young adults and once as a marriage conference. But as Brian said, I've been kind of urged to do this uh, for the whole uh, church. So that's another reason uh, we're going to be doing that. We just think it's time. It's time. Relationships, uh, they need it. And then last but not least, why study this? You're going to like this one. It's a book of the Bible. 
So listen, even if this whole series, you're like, eh, at least you can check it off in seven weeks and go, oh, we made it through another book of the Bible. That's great. And if you're offended, if you're offended by the end of this, which you very well may be, feel free to email me at jeffnelson <laughs> at cherryhillsfamily.org, okay? One last thing before we actually open up the text. Let me just tell you a little bit about the format, how this is going to work week to week. Obviously, you noticed a little different. Uh, we have booklets for this series. If you grab one of those, if you're going to use it, great. If you're not, leave it back behind. But bring that back every week. We could only print so many of those things. I'm not going to have individual message notes every week. That's what we're going to use. And the reason we're going to use that is because I wanted to make sure that we were all working off of the same Bible translation. I mean, Song of Solomon is confusing enough, amen? If we were all working off different translations, this place would be chaos in here. So I've put the New American Standard Bible there, uh, printed out in your notes. Each week it's there, and hopefully you notice on the right side of where the Scripture is, there's little places for you to write notes. You're going to get 99% more out of this study if you're writing down notes. There's not going to be as much fill in the blanks. We'll do that during the application time. Uh, But that's kind of the format. Bring that with you, and hopefully... You can use that even as a tool, you know, years to come. And last but not least, Brian has said that, an email went out. This stuff can sometimes be PG-13-ish. And so if your kids aren't ready for that, I will not be offended if you walk out of the room right now. If you walk out in about 20 minutes, I will be offended. But right now is still your chance if you've got kids and you're just going, I'm not sure, okay? So use wisdom and discernment in that. All right. That was quite an introduction, but I think it was needed. Uh, I know we've prayed already, but can we just pray before we open up the text one more time? Lord, I know as I've been praying, you have impressed on me that your heart for this whole thing is that your church would understand, your bride would understand, you really do want the best for us in our relationships. And you've given us a book to help us in that, to guide us. And so I pray for each person in this room right now, whatever season or stage of life they find themselves in, would they find you speaking to them, guiding them? Would they willingly place themselves under your word and under your teaching? In Jesus' name, amen. Let's do this. Week one, Song of Solomon, chapter one, starting in verse two. You can find that, I think, on the next page over. This morning, we're going to talk about the art of attraction, and we get to see this couple meet for the very first time. Now, I got to tell you, I think we've become a little mystical when it comes to this whole idea of attraction and not very wise about it. Here's what I mean. I don't know about how it is with you, but when my buddies and I were in college, we used to think that God was going to drop some dove down on the one. Right? And the music would start playing. The voice from heaven would be like, this is your bride. (laughs) Or we would use our Bibles like little diviner's wands, right? (laughs) Of course, that's not how it works. If you're single, and I, I, whatever, if you're 10 years old or whatever, wherever you find yourself, if you're single, this might be the most important thing you learn in this whole series. It's coming right out front, and I would encourage you to write this down. But listen, it's not so much about finding the, and I quote, right person. It's much more about finding the right type of person. When we think of attraction, we should be thinking about finding the right type of person. In other words, God's not going to magically direct you to someone. However, if you're looking for the right type of person, he will certainly confirm that confirm that when you're interacting with him or with her. Let me just say, if you're married, 
And you're wondering right now, like, how is this going to apply to me at all today, right? I mean, I'm already married. What does attraction have to do with it anymore? Well, let me just ask you a question. We're going to have to laugh about some stuff, okay? I'm just, I'm going to be joking around, okay? Well, let me just ask you a question, though, seriously. Can you still work on being more attractive to your spouse? That's a lifelong thing. That's a lifelong I don't care if you've been married 60 years, right, Barb and Frank? I mean, you can still work <laughs> on being more attractive to your spouse. And at the very least, at the very least, don't you want your kids to know the type of man, the type of woman that God intends for them to become? So let's see how this couple meets and what attraction really is, not what the world says it is. We're going to address that later. We'll start in verse 2 in our booklets, and notice the woman is going to be speaking here. The whole book, in case you didn't know, is basically a dialogue between Solomon and this woman. So they're going to go back and forth talking to each other, but understand every once in a while this woman's friends are going to talk, and at one point even in the book, God himself speaks. But here, they're married, but she's looking back to what attracted her to Solomon. Verse 2, may he kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. What a great way to start a book. Your love is the sweetest thing on earth, she says about this man. Verse 3, your oils have a pleasing fragrance. Let me tell you what that means. Men used to put oil on themselves to help them smell good. It's just like we do today with cologne, right? So for this woman to say your oils have a pleasing fragrance, it means you smell good. Which is a good start because that's not always true for men, right? I mean, let's just be honest. (laughs) But look at the rest of verse 3. This is really the key. It says your name is like purified oil. A man's name was everything in this day and age. It was who he was. And it represented his standing before God, his righteousness before God. Proverbs 22 says, better than silver or gold is a good name. A man's name is who he is. And she says his name is like what? Purified oil. That's referring to the oil they would use in the temple where they would gather for worship, the oil they would use to light the lamps. And so think about what she's saying. She's saying, your name is holy. It is a light. You are a man of integrity, a man of morality, a man of godly character, of righteousness. And friends, listen closely. This is where a marriage must begin. A man who is rightly related to God. That's where it starts. I mean, if you want to do it God's way, It starts with a man who is rightly related to God, a man whose name is synonymous with purity and integrity. You single guys out there, we have a daughter who's 11 years old. And when she gets to the age of dating, about 25 or so, (laughs) give or take 10 years, the other way, and she brings home a guy, because I hope that's the kind of relationship we're going to have. That's what we're building towards, that kind of openness uh, in, in those kind of areas. She brings home a guy. Uh, her mother and I are going to sit this guy down, and we're going to ask him three questions. I'm probably going to be the one asking him with my shotgun sitting next to me. <laughs> Number one, I'd say, son, for some reason my daughter likes you. Tell me about the day you accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior. Tell me the story of when you bended your knee and made him the Lord of your life. And if he can answer that, any better. 
I'd ask him, number two, tell me how you stay connected to the Lord daily. And I'm looking for things like, here's what I read in the Bible today. Uh, here's what my prayer life's been like. Here's the, you know, the group I'm fellowshipping with. I'm going to this youth group or, or, or whatever. And number three, just as significantly, I'd ask, can you name all of the kings of the southern kingdom in chronological order? <laughs> and if he can't, I mean, obviously, out of here, right? A man's name, his relationship with God is everything. It's the starting point. It's the starting point of a relationship with a woman. Just like God started with Adam, we see he starts here with Solomon and his relationship with God. And this woman, I love it, says, the most important thing to me in a man is that he has submitted his life to God. His name is like purified oil. So she says, therefore the maidens love you. It's not meaning he's like a ladies' man or something. These are her friends. Remember I talked about her friends are going to be uh, throughout this book. They're basically saying, girlfriend, you got a good one. They can see in him he is a man of integrity. His name is purified oil. So she goes on, verse 4, draw me after you and let us run together. She likes being with them. They have fun together. That's kind of important, right? The king has brought me into his chambers. This is talking about passion. She is attracted to him. She wants to be with him. Single Christian gals, let me just give you a word right here about men. Again, I'm just going to hammer this home. A man cannot be a husband until he first becomes a bride. Period. You're like, what do you mean a bride? Well, we've talked about that, right? As a Christian, we become the bride of Christ. We become the bride of Christ. And so if a man hasn't first become a bride, he's never going to be able to lead. He's never going to be able to lead. He has to follow before he can lead. The Bible says, this is why the Bible says, if you're a Christian, you should not marry someone who's not a Christian. It says, don't be unequally yoked in this way. And that is not because God doesn't love people who aren't Christians. We learned last week, God desires all would come to be saved. But what have we been talking about? It's saying God wants the best for us in our relationships. And he knows if you don't share this fundamental first starting point thing, it's going to lead to one of two things. Either you won't have the kind of family you desire to have, a family that's looking to serve and follow Christ, or number two, it will lead to conflict. Trust me on this. I've sat in enough meetings. I've sat in enough counseling sessions. It will lead to conflict because you're eventually going to come up to questions like, how are we going to raise our kids? How are we going to spend our money? How are we going to spend our free time? I mean, I could go on and on. And as a Christian, we believe God has directed us in these ways. He's given us his book. And if you're not starting at that fundamental place together, it will, I promise you, lead to conflict. We talk a lot about, oh, I'm going to missionary date this person. No. It doesn't work. Just trust me in this. Trust God in this. A man must first submit himself to God before even considering him as a mate. I think the men are ready to move on here. So let's go to verse 5. The woman starts talking about herself. She's taking little snapshots of the past when she first met Solomon. She says in verse 5, I am black but lovely. And we know what she means by black later, that she's sunburned for some reason. We'll see why. O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon, the tents of Kedar were made of black wool. 
The curtains of Solomon were purple. Now here's why she's sunburned. It says, do not stare at me because I'm swarthy. I mean, she's insecure about the way she looks, right? She looks ugly in her opinion. For the sun has burned me. That's why. This is a big deal for her. Women at this time, much like today, would protect their skin as their chief cosmetic. Is that that's still true today, right? Skin, number one. This woman couldn't protect her skin. She couldn't protect her skin for some reason. And we're going to see it's because she's been working outside. Why has she been working outside? Get this, because she's been submissive to the authority in her life as a single woman. Look at verse 6. My mother's sons were angry with me. Who's that? My mother's sons. Her brothers. Her father never shows up on the scene in this book. Most people believe uh, he must have been out of the picture, he was dead, or something like that. And so whose responsibility was it going to be to raise this young girl? Along with the mother, it was their brother, her brother's responsibility. And for some reason, they're disciplining her in some way, and it says they made her the caretaker of the vineyards. The vineyards, this family almost certainly would have been a family that was employed by Solomon uh, to work in his vineyards. I mean, he, would, he had this amazing, you know, obviously, um, empire, and so he would employ families to work in the vineyards. And this family probably was employed in this vineyard, and that's how they eventually, uh, you know, even would meet uh, because of that. And her brothers are having her work in the vineyard. They're, she's working there, and she gets sunburned. They're mad at her for some reason. And then she goes on to say, but I have not taken care of my own vineyard. What's she talking about? Her physical body, right? Her skin. She's not able to take care of herself. So listen, the first thing we see right off the bat about this girl is that she's submissive to the authority in her life. Now I know I just used the S word in church. But I think the word submissive has gotten such a bad rap today. It doesn't mean docile. It doesn't mean passive. It means willingly placing yourself under the authority of another. And as we've already seen, any relationship between a man and woman starts with a man submitting himself to the authority of God. Paul then goes on to talk about marriage in Ephesians 5. I mean, these are the verses that we get, you know, so riled up about. But before he even talks about women submitting to their husbands, Ephesians 5.21 says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. There should be mutual submission in the marriage. Then Paul says, wives, submit to your husbands. And then husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And how did Christ love the church? He gave his life up for her, his bride. He gave his life for the bride. That's the ultimate submission, isn't it? Submitting to God's authority, God's will for him in obedience. A marriage begins with mutual submission. If I were to take a poll and ask men what's the number one thing they would want in a wife, you know, if they'd consider the good looks thing, I'm sure, at first. But then I think they'd say, I'd want a wife who respects me, and maybe that's a better word if you don't like the S word, respect. I'd want a wife who respects me. I, want, I would want a wife who would encourage me, who would build me up, who would help me to become the man God intended me to become. Literally, they've done studies about this. Men interpret love as respect. That's how we interpret being loved when, when we're respected. However, if you choose a wife who's not going to respect you, and you're going to find that out in the very early on stages, don't expect that ever to change in your marriage. That's why you see so many men in our culture playing softball three nights a week. 
Because they're going to go somewhere where they can find respect. I wish I was kidding. That's not, that's not a joke. They're going to go somewhere where they can find respect. And their buddies, they'll give them respect. Proverbs says, Better to live in the corner of an attic than with a contentious woman. Literally in Hebrew, that means it's better to live in the corner of an attic than with a contentious woman. He later says, it is better to live in the desert than with a contentious wife. And friends, this goes both ways. A contentious husband, a contentious wife. If you're in a situation like that, don't you just want to run away to the desert? Get away as far as possible. So men, so women, listen, when it comes to the type of mate you should be looking for, you're looking for someone who first has submitted themselves to the Lord. And second, who respects, who respects others. Another thing we see about this woman in verse 6 is that she has a servant heart. I'm sure she didn't enjoy serving in the vineyards. I'm sure she was asked to do that on behalf of the family other times as well. But we see other women have this kind of servant heart in the Bible as well. Rachel was a shepherdess. Rebecca watered camels. Ruth gleaned in the fields. The woman of Proverbs 31 is described as a hard-working woman. They are servants. They are kind. They give their lives to others. So single men, when you're looking for a woman, what do you look for? Do you look for good looks or do you look for inward qualities? I always tell this. I love working with the college and young adult uh, age groups. You know, one of the things I actually say is a great litmus test is what do your friends say about him? What do your friends say about her? And if the best thing they can say is, well, he's really good looking, then you might want to reconsider. But if they say, well, she's really kind, she's caring, he's... A man of integrity, his name is like purified oil. Of course, you're not going to actually say that, but you know what I mean. He's godly. Then you know you're on the right track for the right type of person. One of the things I attracted me most to Peggy was how kind she was uh, to those people, to other people in my life. I've shared with you before, when we were in college, I got to live with 16 of my best friends. We still get together every single year together, and we lived in this old, run-down, beaten-down house. It was a disaster, as you can imagine. But she would come over and she would visit, but before she ever came to see me, she would stop by all my friends' rooms and check in and see how they were all doing. And you're like, well, that's kind of weird. Why wouldn't she just make a beeline? Well, because she cared for the people I cared about. And I loved the fact that she loved my friends. I loved it. And I loved the fact that my friends loved her, that they loved her. They, they were like, yeah, you guys... You guys are a great thing together. One other thing about this girl, we learn here that she is also moral. This is a girl who will not give up her relationship with God for a man. She will not compromise herself sexually for a man. Look at verse 7. Tell me, O you whom my soul loves, where do you pasture your flock? Where do you make it lie down at noon? For why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flock's of your companions. Now just think with me for a minute here. Who do you think she might be referring to as those who veil themselves? Who's she talking about? Anybody want to take a shot at it? Nobody? All right. In these times, those who veiled themselves were the prostitutes. Literally, they would put a veil on and they would come out at twilight. They would come out at nighttime and they would seduce men. But this girl says, where do you make your flock lie down when? What time? 
noon, like broad daylight, where everybody can see us. Where do you make your flock lie down? I am not going to be like one of these immoral girls who comes in the dark to try to manipulate you by using sex. You are not worth compromising my relationship with God. And I'm not going to use sex for a relationship with you. Ladies, the reason you don't use sex to get a man is that it might work. And I guess I just want to ask you, especially you younger ones who are in here, would you really want to marry a man who is willing to compromise you and compromise his relationship with God in that way? I mean, think about these things now, early on in your life. And maybe you're starting over and fresh, and we're going to talk a lot about grace and fresh beginnings and new starts and all those kind of things throughout this series. But listen, a relationship starts with a man who has submitted his life to God. And a man who has submitted his life to God is not going to abuse and take advantage of a woman in this way. And this girl's like, I ain't doing that. You tell me where your flock lies down at noon, and then I'll meet you there. I'll meet you there. Now in verse 8, which is our last verse this morning, this is when the woman's friends speak. We're going to see them, like I said, throughout the book. They're referred to as the daughters of Jerusalem. You can think of them sort of like her little pack of girlfriends, right? Her posse. Women always travel in packs still today, so this is like her pack. These are her girlfriends. And look what they say in verse 8. If you yourself do not know, like in other words, she said, you know, where do you, where do you make your flocks lie down at noon? I'm going gonna to go find him. And they say, if you don't know, most beautiful among women, go forth on the trail of the flock, go after him, and pasture your young goats by the tents of the shepherds. I love that verse because it answers the question, if a woman has a man in her eyes who is a man of integrity and morality and respect, is it okay for her to go after him? You better believe it. Too many women think, oh, I'm just going to wait around for Prince Charming to show up. No, no, no. If you've got in your mind the type of man you're looking for, pursue him. Her friends are like, I love it. If you really look at it, it's sort of like, go trip over yourself in front of him or something to get him to notice you. <laughs> go forth on the trail of the flock. Make sure you pasture your goats right around where he's pasturing his. Put yourself in a situation where he will notice you. And by the way, is that okay for men to do the same thing? I sure hope so. That's exactly how Peggy and I really started dating at first. We were a group of mutual friends. In fact, before we ever started dating, we were just friends for like a year and a half. I never even thought, neither did she, romantically uh, towards her. And then one day, we, one, one spring break, we went on a ski trip with all of our friends together, and I started thinking, huh, I've never noticed that about her. I've never noticed this uh, about her. I'm like, man, I've got to put myself in the trail of the flock somehow, right? And so on the plane ride home, um, we were all sitting together as friends, and uh, fortune had it that they were in front of us was a group of kids with their parents. And I thought to myself, what do women like? Women like men who like kids. <laughs> and so I started playing with these kids. We're laughing, I'm tickling them, I'm doing all this stuff. Now before you think I'm evil, <laughs> I actually do really like kids, but you better believe I was putting myself on the trail of the flock, trying to get noticed by Peggy. And I ask you a question, did it work? This August, we've been married 15 years, baby. <laughs> Put yourself on the trail of the flock when you find these types of people. So let me just sum it up for you. This is what attraction is, a man who knows God and a woman who knows God. That's first and most important. 
you want to do relationships God's way, it's a man who first has submitted his life to God and a woman who has submitted her life to God. That's the basis of any relationship. And then you look for those inward qualities and characteristics we've been studying this morning, respect, integrity, a name that is pure oil, and so forth and so on. And all the daughters of Jerusalem say, you two need to get together. You two need to get together. Next week, we're going to see them get together. But as we close this section on attraction, let me just say a couple words of application, especially to you single people here. Some word about good looks. We've talked about good looks. We're talking about what the world says versus what the word says. And let's just be honest. The world says good looks are the first thing that's most important when it comes to attraction, right? Come on, right? I mean, look at the magazine covers you go by every time you go shopping. We put Hollywood up on this pedestal. Why? Because it's all about good looks. So let me just say three things. The truth about good looks, okay? Number one, this is the part where you get to fill in the blanks here. Number one, looks deceive. Looks deceive. I don't mean that's true all the time, but you really don't know what's underneath the surface just based on looks. That's why they say love is blind sometimes, right? We just base it on outward physical appearance, but we never take the time to actually go below the surface. But Solomon and this girl show us when it really comes to attraction, you better look below the surface. Does he have a name that's purified oil? Is she kind-hearted and servant-hearted? Doesn't mean, by the way, that looks aren't totally unimportant. Should you be attracted to this person? Of course, of course. But it's just not the most important thing. Number two, looks decline. Can I get an amen from this, right? (laughs) Wives, just help out some of the single women in your lives, right? Like there's going to be a day when your husband steps out of the shower and you laugh out loud. (laughs) It's coming. Now don't think I'm saying anything about women right now. Their looks never decline, ever. (laughs) I do, I do tell some people who I'm like doing their premarital counseling sometimes, and I, I'm a little bit like, they got the stars in their eyes right now, you know? I, I sometimes say, just remember something. The day you get married is probably the best looking either of you will ever be. <laughs> Isn't that true? I mean, you just spent like thousands of dollars on this dress. You've gotten your hair professionally done, makeup. You're wearing a tuxedo. You actually shaved as a man. If you don't believe me still, that looks decline. Here is a picture of me when Peggy and I were dating. <laughs> Look at that beautiful flowing hair. You should pray for Peggy. You, should. you know, the worst part is, and this is true, my children have actually asked, Mommy, who is that man? Don't marry for looks. They will decline. Number three, looks cancel out. In other words, what we've been talking about this morning is that a lack of character will always cancel out good looks. I have never had a wife come into my office and say, yeah, my husband's so stingy and disrespectful and he's just plain mean, but he's handsome and that's all I really need. Or my wife is disrespectful, angry, and petty, but she's got great legs. That stuff doesn't matter in the end. Looks will cancel out always character. 
Character always trumps looks. So single people, if I were you and I were still single, here's what I'd do. Here are four markers of attraction. Number one, we've talked about this the whole morning. You need to have the right profile of the kind of person you want to marry. Don't just go out when you get to the age where you're like, oh, I think I might want to start dating. Don't just be like, oh, I'm not really sure who I want to date. You better have like a list. Write it down. Like these are the characteristics and qualities I want in a man. And I'm not going to date somebody who doesn't have them. These are the kind of qualities and characteristics I want in a woman. I'm not going to date someone who doesn't have them. If I were you, if you don't have that list already, start with God's word. What are the kind of characteristics and qualities we've seen here? More than good looking, this is the kind of person you should be looking for. Number two, you need to hold out. You need to hold out. I get it today. Being alone and single is tough. It's tough. Sadly, that seems to be especially true in the church, even though Paul talks all about the gift of that. But listen, I'm going to tell all of you single people who don't believe me right now, being married and alone is even tougher. When you're sharing a king-size bed with someone that you have no feelings for, that there's no mutual respect between one another, that is the ultimate loneliness. So I guess all I'm just saying to you is don't think that getting married is going to cure something. It won't. Number three, you need to go where the great people go. Again, I'm quoting her friends here, right? Go forth on the trail of the flock. Go put yourself in situations where you're going to be around men and women like this. Are you going to find that at the bar down the street? No, you're going to find that within the fellowship of believers, the church. Go where the great people go. And then number four, this is for every one of us in this room, married, single, whatever. You need to become the type of person you're looking and praying for. God, I want this, I want this, I want this, I want this. I want my wife to start doing this. I want my husband to be like this. I want to stop. Am I becoming the man God intended me to become? Am I becoming the kind of wife God intended me to become? We can all learn a lesson in this, can't we? Even late in our lives, whether we've been married for one year or 30 years, we will never stop becoming who God intended us to become. But one last word, and don't check this out. You can't do that on willpower alone. You need the grace of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this uh, introduction to this series. We get to see this couple. And I pray again that you will help us more than anything see. You want the best for us. So we give it to you now, and we ask we could walk out of this place becoming the type of people you desire us to become as men and women. Help us to do that in your grace. Amen.